Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater, and I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues and the themes of the day. So let's jump right in. Technology has changed our lives by increasing the speed of time. We were human. We invented and developed all of these technologies to change our lives, and it's happening every second. Robots are our new human model, and we're looking more like a robotic human. And it's the biggest example of how technology has changed our lives positively, and yes, a little bit negatively. Let's face it, though, tech is in the air, in the water, in food, in education, business, communications, and a whole lot more. As the Beatles sang, it's here, there, and everywhere. So today I thought we would take a deeper dive and speak with Laura Kane, who is head of thematic research for the Americas for UBS. Laura is a CPA and a CFA, and recently authored a blog that truly electrified me. It's called Robots, Friend, or Frankenstein. Welcome, Laura, to Financially Speaking. Great to be here. Great, great. Well, let's start with a brief explanation of what you do, and more specifically, what is thematic investing? Great question. So thematic investing is all about thinking about the future. So we're looking at the investment landscape through a different lens than you typically would if you were following more of a fundamental investment strategy. So the ways that thematic investing differs is that we're taking a longer-term viewpoint. So we're thinking 10 or even 20 years out. So in that sense, thematic investing is more forward-looking and more patient. Second, I would say we're looking at more secular rather than cyclical trends. So these are trends that are not tied to the business cycle. So demographic shifts like the aging of the population. In the U.S., we have 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day. Hmm. Another example would be technological changes. So things like the shift to e-commerce would be an example of a secular trend. So what we're doing is we're taking these secular trends and we're looking across the investment landscape with a very broad lens to understand how are these trends changing the economy? How are they changing the marketplace? And how can we invest in these opportunities that arise as a result of these trends? So what role, Laura, does technology play in the long-term themes framework? In other words, how does technological changes affect your thinking about long-term investment opportunities? Let's take a step back first and just understand what the long-term themes framework is and, and why we have it. So the goal of this framework is to paint a picture of the future world and to understand what goods and services are going to be most in demand in the future. This is how we look for long-term investment opportunities. So the framework starts with three unescapable trends. So these are types of secular trends, like I mentioned earlier. So the three that we focus on are, first, population growth. We're set to hit 10 billion people by 2050. The second is aging. So people are getting older and living longer. Yep. Something we can't escape even mm -hmm. if we wanted to. <laughs> And then urbanization, so the trend of more people moving to cities. So if you look back to the 1950s, only about 30% of the population lived in urban areas. Today, it's more than half. And in the future, it'll be 70 to 80% by the estimates that we've seen. 
And then with these three trends, we have three major overlays or influencers that go around these trends. And these are resource scarcity, societal shifts, and technological breakthroughs. So together, these are the forces that are shaping the future world. And it's going to be a world that's going to be full of challenges, ranging from air pollution due to urbanization, changes in the nature of disease as people live longer and adopt different lifestyles around the world. We're going to see more burden on our healthcare systems when we think about this trend of aging. So technology's role in this is really interesting in that it's both a disruptor and a problem solver. So on the problem solving side, technology is going to help the world absorb this larger population by making the consumption of commodities more efficient. At the same time, technology can also help with the fact that we have an aging workforce. So we can start to use robotics instead of human workers or to supplement human workers in the future. We're already seeing this in in Japan, for example, where they have one of the oldest populations. Now, as I mentioned, at the same time, though, technology is also a major disruptor. So if you think about the labor markets, it's estimated that between 10 to 15 percent of existing jobs will be lost as a result of technological change over the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, new jobs are also going to be created Absolutely. as a result of technology. Right, so on right. net, it we works. actually think we could end up having more jobs, mm-hmm. but that doesn't eliminate the fact that we are going to have this problem of displaced workers in the shorter term because the people that are eligible for these new jobs may not be the same workers who are working in the in the displaced role. Right, and they have to be trained for the, these new technologies, yes, of course, you know, exactly. which is obviously something that the younger generation needs to pay a lot of attention to. So what are you focused on or see as having the most disruptive potential right now? Sure. So there's actually a group of five technologies that we focus on, and they all have some things in common. So the five that we focus on are artificial intelligence, augmented and virtual reality, 5G, cloud, and big data. So we refer to these five technologies as enabling technologies. And what they have in common is that they're all kind of intangible and not necessarily that well understood. We're also seeing that these technologies have more pervasive and broader effects than technologies of the past, as they're being used in many, many different applications across various sectors. And I can talk about a few examples. And they're also being adopted faster than ever before. So I'll just give you a quick example here. So if you look at the telephone, right, it took 35 years before a quarter of American households had a phone. And phones also are quite tangible. Mm-hmm. And they mostly relate to the communication sector. Take something like Pokemon Go, 75 million downloads in one month. So that's roughly a quarter of the U.S. population again. And Pokemon Go isn't just one technology. It's an aggregation or manifestation of a bunch of the technologies that I just mentioned. So augmented reality, AI, data, cloud, right? So what we're seeing is that These technologies are being used to power so many different applications. So everything from driverless cars to robots to smartphones, drones. And in doing so, these technologies are changing not just one industry, but everything. Hmm. And we see that. I I remember recently Netflix had, I forget what it was, something that there was something like 80 or 90 million downloads on the first day. And you just try to compare that. You know, a lot more people than that's three times the amount of people that watch the Super Bowl, for for example. So let's talk a little bit more as we travel back in time, because I think it's interesting. So 
Let's go back to 1894. And I, you mentioned this in your blog, and I thought it was really interesting how terrified people were with these horseless carriages. But what was going on back then? Yes. So if you look back through history, it's really interesting because while we think we've evolved a lot, people really haven't changed that much. Mm -hmm. So when we had the first cars and the first airplanes, people questioned, were these innovations even possible? There was one newspaper clipping I came across where someone was imagining that maybe a plane might carry as many as 50 people one day. <laughs> right? So if only they could see us now in these huge jumbo jets. Well, it, it's funny. I was watching a documentary the other night about Air Force One, and they were showing all the different planes and how the Teddy Roosevelt actually went on the Wright brothers' plane because he was so curious. So he was actually the first president to do that. But Eisenhower, just by what was happening at the uh, during the Korean War, took this plane. It didn't even have the name Air Force One, but there were two planes heading in the same direction. And one was Air Force 383, and one was Air Force 765 or something. And they actually almost collided. And that's why they actually decided, we better come up with our own single name. And that's how they developed Air Force One, which, by the way, has probably more technology in it than anything in the world. Just right, that yeah, that's one airplane. fascinating background there as well. Yeah, yeah and I, I think, you know, other similarities are just, you know, some of the ethical considerations that came up. Again, sticking to the car and the plane, people question, what would this mean for the horse? Right. Uh, what would this mean for warfare? So, you know, using, you know, guns on cars and planes, you know, what does that mean for society? So, I mean, the key takeaways from history to me are technology changes, but the human psychology really doesn't. And the other thing is that technological disruption really tends to follow this curve time and time again. So it starts with the, the fear and the doubts around the possibility of these innovations. Then it kind of moves to the ethical and societal considerations, both positive and negative. So, you know, when the first vehicles came out, women actually experienced greater independence because it was easier to operate uh, a vehicle than to drive a horse and buggy. And then we get to this stage of acceptance and understanding. And then the final one is that the technology just becomes so familiar, so commonplace, and the scale becomes so large that we don't even really think about the fact that we're using these technologies in our daily life. It just becomes something that we and, do. And we're seeing that with the technology that Steve Jobs, you know, brought us in the early 2000s. Now we're seeing the changes in, in what's happened with social media, with Facebook or, and, and, and some of the other applications and Twitter specifically. So we're certainly seeing that change. You know, it's not just about how all this technology affects the economy, as you were saying. You know, it's really about what's happening in our daily lives. And the effect on society is really the bigger picture. So I thought we would just kind of hit a couple of the main areas that, that, that really technology is having an effect that you know, people are, are really concerned about. Let's start with education. Sure. So I think the whole education industry is ripe for disruption. Technology is changing both how we access education. So there's a lot more online programs now available, but it's also changing our need for education. So technology is changing so fast and people are living a lot longer. So a four-year education is not enough anymore to sustain you in your your entire career, which could be, you know, over 40 years now. So there definitely is a need for continuous learning that I think is going to take shape through the online channels, maybe even through private companies educating their employees. And I would also just add, though, is that there's this big focus now on education on just focusing on technology and STEM and coding. But 
As we see machines become more incorporated in our work lives, I would also add that it's important to still focus on what makes us humans after all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on having an understanding of the arts and tapping into creativity, I think is not is something that, you know, should stay with us and still plays an important role. And maybe we'll um, the pendulum will swing and we'll play a more important role in our work lives once again. Well, it's, it's funny you were talking about that. I, I happened to be friendly with Steve Van Zandt, who was on The Sopranos, and, and little Steven from Bruce Springsteen's band. And he currently is in the midst of doing a tour where teachers actually go for free because he feels you know, they're, they're grossly underpaid and he's, he's always been an activist in that area. But he came up with the acronym STEAM. Because his point is, listen, it is important that we need to be focusing on science and technology and engineering and mathematics and, and having kindergartners learn how to code and everything that's happening there. But the A for arts and, and we are human and society does matter and, and we, we just can't forget about that. And sadly, you're seeing a lot of the arts go away in the education system. And I noticed that as a, as a former board of education member. Another area that you know affects all of us, whether it's our work life or in our personal life, is communication and how we communicate with each other, and 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 even digging deeper within families. Sure. So I'm I'm sure we all wish we could go back to the days when we could sit across from our friends and family at the dinner table and not yeah. have the interruption yeah. uh, of cell phones. We'd come home and you know six o'clock at night, and and mom would have dinner. Oh, it was a very different era. Of course, mom had dinner on the table and. Dad got his slippers and, you know, the Donna Reed generation, a friend of mine calls, calls it. But thank yeah. God that's changed. <laughs> so, I mean, and on the other hand, we don't want to paint it as all bad. So, I mean, in some ways we're more connected, right? So talking to friends or family across the globe is easier. FaceTime, if you want to, you know, see your grandkids at any time of the day. So, I mean, there are positives, True. but we have to be mindful that the types of connections we're making are often now less emotional when they're via technology because we are seeing rising rates of things like loneliness, a more appearance-focused culture. So there there are both positives and negatives here, and, and it is a changing world. Well, the FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out is, is a really big deal, especially amongst, actually, not just teenagers, it's really amongst everybody because mm -hmm. people don't realize that what you see on Instagram is the life that somebody it wants to create and tell you that's that's actually their life when it really, really isn't. Unless you've had some education and, and you've been out in the world a little bit, you may not know that. And that's what's scary about certainly millennials and, and Gen Zers and that generation. And, you know, it causes a lot of these habits and digital addictions. And what's happening there, you know, from, from what your studies have shown? Yeah, I mean, there's health effects, both physical and negative. So what we see is that, you know, the average cell phone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. And that's the average. Uh, heavy uh, users over 5,000 yeah, times Yeah, I just a day. got under 5,000. <laughs> I will admit I was working really hard. I'm down to 4,100. But, you know, they, they do count just checking to see what the time is. So, you know, there is sometimes you're just picking it up. That counts. <laughs> <laughs> so when you talk about digital addiction, I mean, there there it is. The numbers kind of show that, that these devices are very habit-forming. Mm -hmm. And in the healthcare area, obviously there's a lot of 
of good being done. And we're going to talk a little bit more about robotics in a second, but it's certainly an area where across the board, it's it's amazing what's happening. I mean, from, from the simplicity of the portal system, which you see with a lot of medical groups lately, and I've dealt with that recently um, with, with my mom and having to reach the doctor. And instead of playing phone tag, just having the ability to put a note in the portal and get a note back. And, you know, my mom still wants the doctors to come to the house in their little black bag. And that's her generation. But at least through the portal systems and everything else, the technology hopefully is is helping with healthcare. And obviously, Apple is one company that's taken on doing a lot with their watch and, and, and hopefully preventing a lot of other problems like heart attacks and things like that in the future. So you knew we were going to go talk Frankenstein eventually. So so let's spend a few minutes on robotics. So, Laura, should we be afraid? I mean, how close are we? Are we looking at the Jetsons or are we looking at the Terminator at this point? I would say we're far away from both. Number one, we need more developments in robot dexterity before we get to a Rosie the Robot type mm-hmm. of situation. So I'm actually going to pose a joke to you here. So, Mitch, how many robots does it take to screw in a light bulb? I'm going to let you answer it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the answer is three. One to hold the bulb and two to turn the ladder. (laughs) And what I'm getting at there is that you know, robots, they can do so much, but they're they are really not so good at some simple tasks, right? So when I said the word dexterity, so they don't necessarily have the most delicate of hands. So robots still can't be used for things like picking strawberries or, you know, harvesting grapes for certain types of fine wine and champagne. So that mm-hmm. they can't do it all yet. Right. Um, so there is a long way to go before we get to, you know, Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons type of situation. And then, you know, on the Terminator side, that's getting more into advances in machine learning. So kind of getting to the point where the technology can run on its own and learn automatically, right, without having a human being needed to kind of teach it everything that it, that it knows how so to do. So is that specifically what machine, when you hear that expression, machine learning, that Right. So that's kind of taking artificial intelligence to the next level. So with artificial intelligence, it's mostly programmed by a human being, right, mm-hmm. teaching the robot or the software how to do something, right? right? It's very programmed. But machine learning is where the software can start to well, how, learn how Watson, from past how, mistakes. How Watson and, won the chess yeah. tournament. Yes. You know, and we'll example. get into yeah. a few more examples mm-hmm. um, later on. But yes, so again, Terminator situation, I don't think uh, we're anywhere close. But your question is a good one because it speaks to a very common fear. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, a survey was done by the Center for Governance of Artificial Intelligence, and it found that less than half of Americans, so 41, only 41%, somewhat or strongly support the development of AI. And Tell us what AI exactly is. So artificial intelligence is adopting human-like capabilities or decision-making capabilities. So um, I think there is this fear out there that this technology is not fully understood and so driverless cars would be artificial intelligence yes artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence combined Combined. with a number of other technologies that we talked about so i mean i think as we get greater familiarity and understanding of these technologies this is going to reshape public attitudes and actually there's been some studies have found what's called the ai effect and it describes a phenomenon whereby the public fails to observe the influence of ai in applications once they become commonplace so a great example of this is if you're on Facebook and you're hovering over a picture of your friend and it suggests to you who that person is, right. that's using artificial intelligence, but 
Uh, when they surveyed Americans and asked them, you know, is this an application of artificial intelligence and machine learning? Less than half Listen, recognized uh, it, it. I mean, you know, I, I we have two dogs, and and our third dog um, who recently passed away was a dachshund. And I'd say between my wife and I and my kids, we spent a lot of time looking at dogs uh, or things for the dogs here and there. And I must have posted a picture about my dachshund. And within you know two weeks, uh, every dachshund Facebook site is is hitting me and hitting me hard. And they want me to get the dachshund pajamas and and the dachshund doll and take a, take a picture of my dachshund and put it on a pillow. So yeah, that's that's the artificial intelligence. So explain the other one, augmented reality, because I think there's confusion and. Sure. So augmented reality essentially overlays digital imagery onto the real world. So an example of this would be using um, a headset like the Google Glasses or a smartphone camera in the Pokemon Go game that we talked about earlier. Oculus is that. So it basically takes the world that you see and overlays more information over it. And, And some of the interesting applications of this include things that help to boost productivity. So let's say you're a mechanic working on a plain engine and you get to a point where you don't know what to do next. You don't know what the next step is. You don't know which button to push or, you know, which which direction to go in. Instead of having to consult a manual or call your supervisor, if you're using augmented reality, it can actually overlay the blueprint of the engine over what you're seeing Hmm. And it will guide you through how to fix the problem, right? So there's a lot of applications that we're seeing, even in driverless cars. So as the driverless car views the road, augmented reality has been used as an overlay or they're experimenting with this to actually point out, you know, things that are very important within the car's purview. So certain road signs, traffic lights, what what should be the areas of focus. So it really is being used in, or at least being tested in a lot more arenas beyond the realm of entertainment, right? Because right, right. right now it, it's so new that it, it's still kind of getting its groundings in terms of how it will ultimately be used. And we've seen this with many technologies right. where, you know, first it's just kind of for fun and mm-hmm. then you start to see all the different ways that it can be used in daily life. Well, the driverless cars, for example, and maybe this is just my generation specifically, but I am never going to feel comfortable with that just because of the finesse that driving takes. And it's the little things. And you, you know that if you're driving in New York City, there's a certain way that, you know, you have to drive and be careful versus, you know, driving out in Iowa somewhere or what it's like with black ice or, or you know, or all these weather conditions. And and it's, uh, I, I want it to work. It's just, it's just so hard for me, at least my human brain, to wrap myself around how that how that's going to be part of the future. But it it probably will be. Right. I mean, I, I just go back to the example of the first planes, the flying machines. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought at that time that this would be possible, right? So, yeah. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, people have to realize that a lot of these ideas were, were there. Like Alan Turing, who was really well known from the movie Imitation Game, actually wrote about all of this in, in 1950 when he started talking about making software smarter, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there, you know, this... This didn't just come up, happen overnight. Right. And oftentimes what we see is that there there can be a long time between when a technology is first thought of and when it actually kind of takes off or hits an inflection point. And oftentimes it's because there's a missing technology in between that really makes that technology take off and be possible. So with artificial intelligence, even though we may have thought of it nearly seven decades ago, it wasn't until we made these strides in computing power, storage, networking, and software platforms until 
we were really able to see AI reach its full potential. Same thing goes for something like GPS technology. So first created for military purposes, but it wasn't until we all had smartphones in our pockets till right. we use GPS all the time. So oftentimes we see this as a kind of common thread throughout history that there's a missing link or technology that we need before something new can really become mainstream. True. So to finish up, Laura, I think the real question that everybody does wonder about is when humans and robots will become so similar <laughs> that the distinction becomes almost unimportant. You know, there have been a few TV shows like that, like Mr. Robot and Humans, for example. But robots are becoming more human-like. And humans, in many ways, are becoming more design object, as we see people with implantables, for, for example. So... Are my great grandchildren going to be cyborgs? What 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 what, um, what are the what are the smartest minds in the world? You know, thinking about fifty, a hundred years from now. Well, maybe not your great grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Maybe your great great grandchildren. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen. In my view, there really is no replacement for human creativity, intuition, and ingenuity. Our experiences as people allow us to infer information across spectrums of thought. They equip us with emotions. They shape our thinking. I don't think we'll ever be able to replicate this. So as robots will never live a human life, have a family, experience love, experience loss. I think these things make us distinctly human. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, you know, thinking about these flying machines that couldn't be possible. But in my view, I think these things will remain uniquely human. Well, I hope so. And as Bruce Springsteen, as everybody knows, I'm a big fan of, he talks about human touch, and there's really nothing like that. Laura, I want to thank you for being with us uh, today, or actually, was this your robot or clone sitting in for you? I'm not really sure, <laughs> but I think it's you. Anyway, though, in 50 years of uh, artificial intelligence and robotics that continue to capture the imagination of the general public, but it's also brought a great deal of fear and skepticism, as we talked about. Even the great science fiction writer Isaac Asimov called this the Frankenstein complex, saying that robots will benefit humanity and do good for mankind as long as we teach them to obey orders and not bring harm to other humans. This will ultimately be good for mankind rather than, you know, Planet of the Apes and destroy it. So on that happy note, I thank you for listening. And please remember to share this podcast with your friend and connection. And we will put a link to Laura's blog on this so you can read her excellent blog and, and all of her work. And remember, pay yourself first. Thanks. Thanks.